So if you look around, you'll notice that Pastor Mike is not here today. That's because today is the day of his daughter's wedding. So uh, I called him this morning. He was actually planning on being here because the wedding's not till this afternoon, but he was feeling a lot of emotions and he was like, I don't think I can come to church today. So, so he's, uh, he's preparing himself for the wedding. So, so congratulations to uh, Aubrey and Kevin this afternoon and to Mike and Sabrina. Um, so this week we are on chapter 8 of the book of Daniel. So if you've been following along with this series, uh, and we're encouraging everyone to read the book of Daniel along with the, the series here, it's one chapter a week, really easy to figure out where we are. We're this week's chapter 8, next week read chapter 9 for next week's sermon. And uh, doing that reading ahead of time is going to be really helpful in just kind of getting your mind going on what are we talking about and put some questions in your mind that maybe we'll answer in the message. Uh, if not, we could love to talk to you about it after the service, but, uh, but it'll really help you to get the most out of this series if you're reading along with us. So this week, chapter eight. So the book of Daniel has two different kinds of stories, two different kinds of things uh, are in the book of Daniel. One is uh, the stories of Daniel and his three fellow exiles as they are uh, having their adventures navigating living in a pagan society. They have been taken away from Israel and taken to Babylon and how they uh, are faced with challenges and how they overcome those challenges uh, through are the great stories of the book, you know, the fiery furnace and the lion's den and all that stuff, and how God helps them to survive these threats, and not only that, but to thrive in Babylon. And they're all successful in many ways in their lives in Babylon, and they're witnesses for God, and they're able to maintain their own faithfulness to God. All this despite living in a very hostile society. So we've already covered all those stories, the stories of those guys and their, their adventures in Babylon. Um, the other part of Daniel is these prophetic visions that uh, mostly Daniel sees these prophetic visions. Also, Nebuchadnezzar has one, and Daniel interprets it for him. Uh, but, uh, and we talked about the first one of those visions last week. That was Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, he has a vision of four monsters who represent four kingdoms. And it's not very clear that they're representing specific historical kingdoms. A lot of people think that they are, but it's kind of uh, unclear. And... Uh, and especially because the last one seems to, that kingdom seems to last right up till the final judgment um, time, it, it seems like it's a possibility that the, they're just representing kind of kingdoms in general. And this is just the way things are, is that there's these, these monsters that come along in this kind of a cycle of one following after the other throughout all time. And they're all beasts. They're all monsters. They're all evil even though uh, some are, are, are evil to a greater extent than others. And why are all human kingdoms represented by evil beasts? Well, because they're all being run and, and led by and populated by sinful people. And so uh, that sin carries into their organizations and their kingdoms. There's none of the visions of, that Daniel has in the book where any human kingdom rises up that represents justice and righteousness and godliness. So if you ever feel like you're living in a society that's not very encouraging 
to the holy life that God wants from us, that is a correct feeling. You are not. Uh, It's only when God intervenes at the end of Daniel's vision and the thrones of judgment are set up and all the human kingdoms are destroyed and God sets up his own kingdom, that's when uh, it tells us in Daniel chapter 7, verse 27, it says, Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High, and his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. And this is the end of the matter. That's what we look forward to, is is God intervening and getting rid of all of these kingdoms in the end. So Pastor Mike had a lot of interesting things to say about that vision from chapter 7, and it's worth your while to go back and re-listen to that again, and, uh, and you'll catch more things and, and uh, hear that uh, a second time will be really helpful for you. Or if you missed it, definitely hear it a first time. It's all on our uh, website or on our app on your phone. Now, this week, chapter 8, and here's how chapter 8 begins. It says, In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. So the vision in chapter 7 was in the first year of Belshazzar. So this is about two years later that Daniel has another prophetic vision. And this time, instead of seeing monsters, he sees some uh, little more normal animals. It starts out with a ram. Um, And the ram in this vision is a very powerful and aggressive animal, and it runs around fighting every other animal in sight, and it has victory over them all. Daniel says, No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. Now, before we move on to the next animal in the vision, we have a very big difference this time around compared to the last vision. Right? It, that is, when the angels show up in the vision to help Daniel understand it, which they did in chapter 7, and they're doing it again here in chapter 8, but this time, uh, the angel tells Daniel directly which kingdom each animal is a symbol of. And so Gabriel tells him in uh, verse 20 that the two-horned ram from the vision represents the kings of Media and Persia. So for Daniel, when he saw this vision... Uh, The empire of Media and Persia was the up-and-coming main rival to the kingdom of Babylon that he was a part of. But this vision doesn't really even concern itself with the fall of Babylon. Um, It starts out with the Medo-Persian empire already running around and defeating everyone, which presumably includes Babylon, but they're not singled out as, as, uh, as a specific one that was defeated. They just defeat everybody and everything in sight. So for Daniel, what he's hearing here is your empire that you've been a part of for your whole life, basically, except for his childhood, is going to fall to its main rival. And they are going to come in and no one is going to be able to stand against them. But the ram is just the first part of the vision. The main part actually comes with the next animal, which is a goat. And the goat arrives on the scene and defeats the ram. And it's told in a, pretty dramatically in the vision. It's in verse 5 here. It says, um, As I was thinking about this, that is, he was thinking about this ram running around and defeating everyone. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat 
with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west. Okay, so it's not a normal goat. It has a prominent horn between its eyes, which means this is a unicorn goat. One big horn. Um, and then it says, so the, uh, it has a prominent horn between its eyes, came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. So it's not just a unicorn goat. This is a Pegasus unicorn flying goat. Um, <laughs> which is quite a uh, thing. My picture, unfortunately, is a Pegasus unicorn horse because I couldn't find a picture of a Pegasus unicorn goat, but you get the idea. This is a very uh, amazing creature that comes and is now the prominent thing in the story. It comes from the West in verse 6. It came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. So again, unlike chapter 7, here in chapter 8, uh, Gabriel tells Daniel exactly what nation is represented by the goat. It's in verse 21 where he says, The shaggy goat is the king of Greece. And the large horn between its eyes is the first king. Now, for Daniel, uh, seeing this vision in the final years of the Babylonian Empire, um, the, uh, the Greeks were a, a small country off in the distant west um, that were not really a prominent player yet. But, um, and so this was a... Uh, a, a faraway prophecy for him that the Greeks would defeat the Persians. But of course, now for us, some thousands of years later, uh, we can look back and see that that is exactly what actually happened. Um, see, after the Persians came and conquered Babylon, which we have recorded here in Daniel, they didn't stop there, of course. They continued their westward expansion, and they went in, and they eventually came into conflict in Asia Minor with uh, the Greeks, and uh, because of their conflict with the Greeks there, they decided what we need to do is we need to invade Greece itself. And Greece at this time was uh, not a unified nation. It was still made up of a variety of city-states. And the most prominent of those were the two city-states of Athens and Sparta. And, uh, and so the, the Persians invade and the Athenians and the Spartans uh, resist. And this invasion resulted in two very famous battles, both of which stuff of legends. Uh, the first one is the Battle of Thermopylae, in which King Leonidas of Sparta famously held a mountain pass with his 300 Spartans against a Persian army of 150,000 soldiers. And uh, there was a really accurate uh, documentary made about that in 2006 called 300. You guys can check that out sometime. Um, but, but of course, the 300 Greeks couldn't really uh, hold out very long against 150,000 Persians. After a few days, they were defeated, uh, but not before the, the Greeks were able to muster their forces and prepare for the main battle, which was the Battle of Marathon. And at the Battle of Marathon, uh, the Greeks defeated the Persians decisively. And then the legend is that uh, the messenger from Marathon ran 26.2 miles back to Athens to report the victory uh, of their forces and got to Athens, reported that they had won, and then immediately killed over and died from the exertion of running so far and so fast. That's a legend, but uh, 
But the, the fact of history is uh, the Greeks did defeat the Persians at the Battle of Marathon. And then some years after that, Philip of Macedon came along and he united all the Greek city-states into one nation. And, uh, and his son, Alexander, became the first king of the Greek empire. And Alexander the Great, as he's now known, is the one who is represented by the prominent unicorn horn in Daniel's vision. And he's the one who came in and actually put an end to the Persian Empire and conquered everything else in sight, came through so fast that it was like he was flying and wasn't touching the ground as they invaded and took over everything all the way to India. It says in verse 8, it says, uh, the, the goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off. And in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. Now, the historical fulfillment of that part of the uh, prophecy is, is that Alexander, at the height of his power, at the age of 33, suddenly died. And when Alexander died, there was no one who was able to rule over his whole empire, and so it split up into four pieces, and there were then four different nations that came out of the Greek empire, the four prominent horns that grew up from the death of the first one. And, and, and this is the part where people who read the Bible, but they don't want to admit that it is actually a supernatural book from God, they've got a problem here. Because uh, it's one thing for Daniel to predict you know, okay, there's going to be a succession of kingdoms and one is going to come after the other and they're all going to be these big beastly monsters and stuff. You know, a wise man who knew his history might be able to predict this is the way things are going and it's probably the way things are going to go in the future and, and give some general kind of outlines of the historical things. That's possible. But this, this is too specific Right? It actually names the, the Medo-Persian and the Greek empires, and it predicts through the symbols the death of Alexander the Great, the first king of the Greek empire, at the height of his power, and the breakup of his, power, of his kingdom into four pieces. So how could uh, Daniel know this stuff? It, it's it's going to even go on to tell some more uh, specific predictions about one future king in the rest of the chapter. We're going to get to that in a minute, but how could Daniel have known all these things? Well, there's, there's only two possibilities, right? One possibility is that Daniel didn't really write this, right? It was written hundreds of years later by someone who had already seen these historical events take place and wanted to deceive his readers into thinking that Daniel had predicted it uh, long ago. Right? If that's the case, then the Bible's not really a good book. It's a book of lies, and we should just throw it out. Um, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified that, about God that he raised Christ from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. 
Now, Daniel's prediction of uh, the death of Alexander and stuff is not as significant as Jesus' resurrection, but the point is similar in that if, if the Bible is a book that is deliberately deceiving us into thinking that uh, it predicted the future when it really didn't, then our faith is in the wrong place. Uh, there's, there's, there's really no middle ground here. If option one is true, that another author deliberately lied and said that this prophecy came centuries earlier from Daniel in order to deceive his audience, we should not trust the Bible. However, there is another option. Option two is that God actually knows the future, and he gave Daniel visions of the future. And that's a pretty big deal. As Christians, we kind of take this for granted sometimes that, oh yeah, of course God knows what's going to happen, but we really shouldn't take it for for granted because that's a big deal. This is evidence that the Bible is not just a, a book of religious advice from ancient Jewish religious authors, right? This is from God. This is not human wisdom, It is the revelation of God. And it's a big deal that God actually knows the future. He knows what's going to happen hundreds of years from now, and he knows what's going to happen in your life next week. God is not taken by surprise. And and which option we choose, whether, whether the Bible is trying to fool us into thinking that it predicted the future, or whether God actually predicted the future through Daniel... It's not just a flip of the coin that we choose one or the other. There is good, strong evidence that this book was written by Daniel um, from uh, philosophical, literary, and historical arguments that can be made to show that Daniel wrote this prophecy and that he did it at the end of the Babylonian Empire. So is this, is, is this uh, you know, proof that the Bible came from God and not from the minds of men? No, it's not, it's not proof, but... Accurate, predictive prophecies in the Bible are a very strong evidence that supports our faith. Okay, so let's, let's keep moving on to the rest of the vision. After the breakup of the Greek Empire, symbolized here by the four horns that grow up uh, from, to replace the one big horn on the goat, we have one particular horn that becomes the focus of the rest of the chapter. In verse 9, it says... Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of them, some of the starry hosts down to the earth, and it trampled on them. It set itself up as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. So out of one of these four uh, kingdoms, the four, we have a significant horn, that is a significant king who rises up and becomes powerful. For Daniel, this was an unknown future ruler. He's not given the name of this guy like he's given the name of, he knows it's going to be a Greek guy, but he doesn't know who. It uh, it's all stays in the, in, in the realm of symbols and general statements. 
even in Gabriel's explanation. But for us now, looking back, we can see what he was predicting. It was, uh, he was predicting a, a particular Greek king who fulfilled this prophecy named Antiochus IV. And Antiochus expanded his influence to include what Daniel calls the beautiful land, which is a reference to Israel. And the vision, in this vision, he reaches even to the stars and tramples on some of them. Which, you know, Antiochus was not literally a goat's horn and he's not literally trampling on stars. This is all symbols. But the stars here symbolize the people of God, the, the, the righteous people who are in the land and worshiping him at the temple. Um, and he's going to trample on some of them and set himself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. And then it says he will take away the daily sacrifices from the Lord and throw down the sanctuary. So historically, here's what happened is um, Antiochus wanted to follow a program of Hellenization that Alexander had used. Hellenization means to make things uh, more Greek. They wanted to not just spread Greek rule around the world, but they wanted to spread Greek culture. And they, uh, so they would go in and they would want people to build using Greek architectural styles. And they wanted people to dress like Greeks. And they wanted people to speak the Greek language. And they wanted people to worship the Greek gods. All of Greek culture was being imposed all over the Greek empire. And uh, Antiochus wanted to follow that program in Israel, but many of the Jews resisted. Especially they resisted the idea of worshiping uh, the Greek gods. And so Antiochus decides he's going to take a strong uh, approach to this. And so he makes Judaism illegal. He says, if you circumcise your son, death penalty. If you uh, if you have a copy of the, the Torah, the, the, the Bible, uh, death penalty. Um, and, uh, and, and, and all these Jewish practices were all made illegal. And in order to stop the worship of God in the temple in Jerusalem, he converted the temple into a statue or, or into a uh, temple to Zeus. And he brought in a statue of Zeus and he offered sacrifices to Zeus on the, altar, on the altar in the temple, including he offered a pig on the altar, which was a, an unclean animal that defiled the altar uh, for the worship of God. So why did all this happen? Well, it tells us there in the text it was because of rebellion. God's people have not learned their lesson. While some of them were refusing Antiochus' program of Hellenization, they were standing up for God, some were rebelling against God. And God chose to allow Antiochus to put a stop to the sacrifices in the temple in order to get people to realize that they needed to repent. See, God used Antiochus to do what he said in the prophet Malachi. Uh, chapter 1, verse 10 of Malachi, say, God says, Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. And now God has made sure that that is what happened. He's used Antiochus to see through to it that useless sacrifices were not being made. 
The other thing that this, this horn uh, did in Daniel's vision is that he threw truth to the ground. Now that is an, an important statement. This evil king has thrown truth to the ground. Not just that he's thrown a particular true fact to the ground. The, the idea of truth, the concept of truth has been defeated. It, it, it's like when Jesus told Pontius Pilate that all who are on the side of truth listen to him. And Pontius Pilate's response was, what is truth? Truth doesn't matter. And of course, we see this in our world today, where people have relativistic worldviews, where they teach what is true for one person, not necessarily true for someone else. We can all be right, even if we believe contradictory things. What one person says is true is someone else's fake news. And where people can claim to have alternative facts. But none of this is really new, right? Antiochus threw down the truth. Pilate questioned the existence or at least significance of truth. In his famous book, 1984, George Orwell imagined a world in which the government ran a department uh, uh, that was called the Ministry of Truth. And the, the job of the Ministry of Truth was to lie to everyone. And, uh, and they were, their job was to make sure that people believed that the government, whatever the government told them, to believe that that's what they would believe. And so they, had, they would go through and change the history books. They would change old, old news articles. They would change everything to match whatever the latest uh, teaching from the, the party was. And, uh, and they were always changing it. So it was constantly having to revise everything in order to show uh, the latest uh, facts. And the kingdoms that Daniel saw as beasts have frequently tried to attack the truth. Antiochus wanted the Jews to believe that their God was no better than Zeus, that the cultural practices they were taught in the law of Moses were inferior to the Greek ways, that their religion was not more true or valid than the Greek religion. But none of those things were true. See, some things are really true, and some things are really false. And two contradictory claims cannot both be true. There is absolute truth that is true for all people at all times. We don't get to make our own reality. We don't get to make our own truth. And much truth can be known. And the Bible is our best source for truth. Mike explained last week that all human governments are beasts to some extent. They're all a product of sinful people and run by sinful people, including our own nation. But not all nations are equally beastly. Some are a lot better than others. And it is our duty as Christians to exercise what influence we can to make our nation less beastly. Antiochus was a beast, and he made his kingdom much more beastly. And the people of Israel rightly opposed him. And uh, his oppression led to the Maccabean revolt, 
in which the temple was restored and Israel broke away from Greek rule. And nowadays we, uh, we know about that because that is what is celebrated at the Feast of Hanukkah every year. Close to Christmas time is the celebration of the overthrow of Antiochus and the restoration of the temple sacrifices in Jerusalem at, uh, at the Feast of Hanukkah. But this did not happen before there was a lot of evil and suffering, and this horn was able to inflict all that on the people of God. But Daniel's vision did include a note of hope at the end. In verse 13, it says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, that is, these were angels speaking to each other in his vision, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people? And he said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. There is a limit that God has put on the oppression that Daniel predicts here. Yes, this horn is going to trample some of the stars of the sky. He's going to bring the sacrifices to an end. He's going to throw down the sanctuary. He's going to throw down truth, but only for a time. And then things will be restored. And in the explanation of the vision, in verse 24, talking about... Uh, oops, 24 is right at the end here. Uh, verse 24, he says, "...he will become very strong." but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. So Antiochus died a painful illness. The Maccabees succeeded in winning back the temple and restoring the sacrifices, and this period of oppression came to an end. And we know that other rulers like Antiochus have come and gone since then. And they too have taken their stand against the prince of princes. They've attempted to throw truth to the ground. And they've attempted to, uh, to, to, to set themselves up against God. They've sought to end the worship of God. And many of them have succeeded for a time. Several hundred years after Antiochus, the Apostle John wrote this. He said, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. And Antiochus was surely one of those many antichrists, uh, those enemies of Christ that John is referring to here. I'm sure Hitler was another one. Uh, I don't know the names of the others, but, uh, but there were many who had come before John and many who came after John. There will be um, one antichrist with a capital A who will come at the end, and will, there are specific prophecies about him later on. But, uh, but there have been many enemies of Christ who have been oppressive rulers who seek to set themselves up above God. They're false teachers who seek to lead people astray into false religion. And they're people who attack truth. Many have come, many are coming. 
but all of them will have only temporary success in their opposition to God and his people. God will bring them all to an end, and he will triumph, and his eternal kingdom will be given to his saints. And that's the major message of Daniel chapter 8. So how did Daniel respond? What did he do after he saw these visions? He tells us right at the end of the chapter, verse 27, I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. See, when Daniel understood that there would be suffering, evil, sin, oppression, and opposition to God for many centuries to come, he was appalled. These vicious beasts would roam the earth, causing destruction and suffering. They would oppress the people of God. And it would be only after much suffering that God would bring it all to an end and initiate his righteous kingdom. And it was all beyond Daniel's understanding. So what was Daniel to do? Well, after the emotional exhaustion of the experience of this vision wore off, it says he got up and went about the king's business. That is, he he went back to his life. He resumed his daily practices of prayer. He lived faithfully for God in the midst of a culture that opposed his faith. And as a government official who worked for the king, He sought to do his work and make his nation a little less beastly. Even though his employer was Belshazzar. Belshazzar the king. Remember a couple of chapters back we saw uh, how he, uh, a short time after Daniel's vision here, was going to deliberately uh, set himself up against God by partying with the uh, things from God's temple. The temple that his predecessor had destroyed and looted all this stuff from it. And now Belshazzar was going to use those looted things for his drunken party. That was the king whose business Daniel was occupied with. He knew that his kingdom would not last much longer. That it would fall to the Persians pretty soon. But Daniel got up and went about the king's business. See, he did what he could. And as we saw a few weeks ago, to root out corruption and see to it that things were done as they should be in the affairs of Babylon was a part of his job. He himself was above reproach in all his conduct. And he sought to do his part to make his nation less of a beast. Obviously, Daniel is our example. What are we going to do? We know that the world sets itself up in opposition to God and in opposition to righteous living, in opposition to holiness. What shall we do? 
Well, we should get up and go about the king's business. Live your life in righteousness and holiness, seeking to make your part of the world more in line with God and less in line with the beasts. That is the godly response to the visions of Daniel. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing all these things to us. We thank you that we can know that you are not surprised by the things that happen around us and to us, and that you will bring about your kingdom. Give us the strength to be about the king's business. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.